Lipid nanoparticles might not be the talk of your dinner table, but they certainly are when we're sitting at the Cytiva lunch table. And of course, why not? Little specks of fat, tiny particles made of fat and other substances that can be packed with therapeutic payloads like proteins and nucleic acids, and then they can deliver them all over the body of a patient. In the spirit of efficient delivery of information, let's get going. Lipid nanoparticles, they're what matter on today's Discovery Matters. Today we have one of our very own as our expert guide. So uh, yes, I'm Lloyd Jeffs. I'm the Senior Director of Biopharma Services, working in the Precision Nanosystems Business Unit within Cytiva. I have been working at Precision Nanosystems the last five years, but in the industry for the last 25 years, working with liposomes and lipid nanoparticles. Working for over 20 years with encapsulating nucleic acids, different kinds of nucleic acids, into these lipid nanoparticles. A wealth of experience in this field then. So what about these payloads on these little fatty guided missiles? A lipid nanoparticle has been shown to be an effective delivery vehicle for delivering nucleic acids, whether that's DNA, short interfering RNA, messenger RNA, self-amplifying RNA. There's many different kinds of nucleic acids in, effectively into target cells and getting either turning off genes or delivering new genes to restore gene function. So I think it's quite a powerful tool. It's important to distinguish that nanoparticles are a targeted solution for certain conditions. I think one thing we have to say is that lipid nanoparticle technology is not the cure-all for everything. I think we have to understand where it wins, where it's the best. We know it's very good at delivering nucleic acids. There's work being done at delivering it to specific parts uh, of the body where the disease is, so targeting and etc. But I think in 10, 15 years' time, I would love to see dozens of mRNA, LMP, vaccines and therapeutics on the market. I think that'd be very, very cool because I know the technology, I know its potential, its power. But it's hard to develop drugs. They're on Patro drug, which is the first approved sRNA LMP. It took them, I want to say, probably 15 to 18 years of development before it was an approved drug in 2018. So that's a long cycle, right? And if we can reduce that development time, and a lot of that's clinical trials, and they take time. But if we can reduce that drug development time by half, I think that would be very, very good as a goal. And I think we can with the available technologies today. Wow, his optimism is palpable. How does Lloyd see us getting closer to that goal so that access to future therapeutics will improve? I think what it comes down to is, as a, a drug development scientist, you have a hunger for data, right? You want to generate that data, then you want to make good decisions about how you analyze it. And then moving forward, if you're doing a good job, what are you going to do with that data? If you're designing your experiment appropriately, you get the answers you need to move forward. You need to be very informed about what you're doing. One thing that I was taught quite early on in my career was if something's not working, recognize that and then look for a solution. I think, you know, you, you know, one of the mistakes people can make, go, oh, it's going to work soon, we can tweak this and tweak that. But fundamentally, you have to be really on top of things. 
you can't just generate piles of data and really not do anything with it. You've really got to make informed decisions using the right analytical tools to really see what you have. I think it's important. Time's our enemy. We saw that during the pandemic, right? How fast could they get the mRNA LMP vaccines to market? Did a tremendous job. Time is our enemy. It's not every day you hear a scientist quoting Ava Perron. Our industry has to move quickly because patients are waiting. And then it has to move slowly because patients' lives are on the line. So did young Lloyd one day just think specks of fat is where it's at and just dived into the field? Well, his fascination with the way things work in health and nature did indeed begin at a very young age. I think I was in kindergarten and we went on a, a nature field trip and I guess I volunteered to pick up the rabbit droppings or whatever. <laughs> I don't know why, but um, I had a kind of a curiosity about it. I just loved looking at nature and going, oh, that's interesting. Just asking these basic kind of questions about life. When I was actually doing my PhD, my PhD supervisor kind of gave me a, a book by Richard Feynman, who worked on the Manhattan Project. I thought, wow, like he's you know basically challenging. He's enthusiastic about learning how things work. There's also a TV show, two TV shows growing up, and one was the James Burke show, uh, The Day the Universe Changed. It's an old show on BBC where he talks about scientific progression and things like serendipity. If somebody worked on this in one part of the world and 20 years later, and he picked it up and continued it, it was wonderful. And then Carl Sagan's Cosmos. So uh, I was influenced a lot by television as a kid. I, too, am a huge fan of Feynman. I read his books to my boys. I mean, and do you remember the TV shows he's talking about, Connor? The TV shows, no, because in my childhood, while we had a TV, there was very seldom a TV signal. But it was the books. And six easy pieces led me, actually, to do high school physics. But it's time to bring in a new expert so that we can get a practical example of how RNA delivery is being used to tackle certain forms of cancer. I'm a professor at Tel Aviv University. I'm Dan Peer. I'm the director of the Laboratory of Precision Nanomedicine. I have an administrative position as a vice president for research and development of the university. But basically, I'm a scientist interested in RNA delivery. Dan has been using lipid nanoparticles to treat ovarian cancer. What drew him then to ovarian cancer? We have a global interest in cancer in general. I also have a personal angle on this. And since I knew many people who had ovarian cancer, including my mother-in-law, I thought that this is a, a very intriguing type of cancer. And since it's mostly diagnosed in a late stage, unfortunately, I think that we owe our community to generate new therapeutic modalities, even in late stage, in metastatic stage, in highly resistant tumors that already been treated with different types of lines, for example, different chemotherapies, they become very resistant and are highly metastatic as well. So we thought that this is a very good uh, type of an aggressive and metastatic type of tumor that we want to study. And we have been studying ovarian cancer for the last 15 years and different modalities, trying to identify new 
potential targets, but also trying to come up with new delivery approach to those tumors. Mostly the ones that are around peritoneum area. Dan and his team used siRNA, which is small interfering RNA. Ah, siRNA. You know there are more types of RNA than Inuit have words for snow. I mean, I actually counted them. Inuktitut words for snow, 53. Biologist types of RNA, I stopped counting at 81. In fact, there's even a snow RNA. So what is siRNA and why is it so special? This is an evolutionary mechanism that was discovered in 1998 by Andrew Fire and Craig Mello, and they received the Nobel Prize in 2006 for that. We have already five drugs on the market with siRNA, small interfering RNA, that blocks expression of proteins. The recent one is Inclisiran, which is a wonderful drug. Basically, you get your cholesterol going down with two injections a year and you get your cholesterol going down at the level of you know at least 50% or 60% of your LDL level it's fantastic so i think that there is a lot of um, potential in siRNAs but for cancer are dividing cells so just imagine you silence something but they continue to divide so you need to block it so you need your siRNA to work on specific targets targets that are related to the cell cycle or to some process of of changing them. And I think that this is like super, super important and sensitive. And therefore, the next generation of this will be editing, will be genome editing. We published the first genome editing in cancer paper, which is really, really high efficiency, like 80% knock out of genes in animals in two types of tumors, including ovarian cancer, and it made a lot of noise. We have not yet went into the clinic with this approach because many people were skeptical. What will happen if you take out one gene? But apparently, this kind of a dogma became more and more logical, and many are now interested in doing that. And we are trying to do this with a new Californian-based company that we want to show in the clinic, in cancer patients, that this approach is feasible and effective. Now to the delivery aspects. So Dan and his team discovered that CKAP5 was the therapeutic target that they could target for genetically unstable ovarian cancer. How did they discover that? And how did Dan go around screening for that target? This is the beauty of science. You know, you always build on somebody else's backbone. We read the paper that was published in Cancer Research in 2011 that was done on whole genome screening that was done with siRNAs in vitro. And then this gene that has been known to be important, it's basically a cytoskeleton. It's part of a complex of proteins that are related to basically the process of mitosis, how cells divide in a normal as well as in the cancer cells. And so we read this paper with great interest because the screen was done on myeloma, on multiple myeloma. And in vitro, that 
this was one out of five genes that been identified with promise in cancer. And so we, we try to understand mechanistically what this gene is doing. And we came up that genome instability is very important, is one of the hallmark of, of cancer. And we know today that some tumors are more sensitive to knockdown of this particular gene, whereas some are less sensitive and nothing will happen. They will be very, very happy and continue to proliferate. So we did a screen of 20 different cell lines and we found those sensitive type of tumors and those predominantly, the majority were related to ovarian cancer. I think it's just fascinating what he said about seeing the behavior of certain cells dying and whether those are the right cells that are dying. Well, basically, think about this as a domino effect. The question is if everything else falls down or not. And if you're in a position that this position is important, and we know that some types of cancer cells, this gene is actually in the right position, you take it out, you're basically destroying the domino. You have a domino effect, everything is falling down, basically means that you can block the proliferation of cancer cells. But unfortunately, not all the cancer cells are like this. And we are not naive. We know that in time, tumors are very smart. We are coping with them, and every day is a war. So we learn, we come up with new ideas, or we think it's new ideas. But the tumors are already two steps ahead of us. So we want to be in a position to beat the war, or in an ideal world, it's to beat the world, but in a realistic way, I would say, we want to be able to at least block this really aggressive form of tumors. We want to be able to stop proliferation, at least for a certain time. If cells are being held for a certain time, eventually they will die because they need to proliferate. But this is an evolutionary in a human story. So cancer is always, always in an evolutionary step, always acquire new tools to handle our own ideas Sometimes we feel very un unlucky and unhappy with this, but on an optimistic standpoint, and I think we should be optimistic, technology brings us closer to finding new potential targets, and together with really exquisite delivery approaches, we will be able to offer patients more you know, weapons in their arsenal. Yeah, tumors are so smart and they really keep us on our toes. And so are lipid nanoparticles the technology that Dan thinks is going to be like our super weapon, our cruise missiles, our, you know, way of hitting the exhaust vent? And here is Dan's honest answer, and it is really about taking it step by we step. We cannot jump before we know how to sit down. So I think that we are in the sit down level, basically. So we demonstrated, for example, that this was an interesting target in more than one type of tumor. It's not only ovarian, but also in myeloma. 
Now this is knocked down, but what will happen if we knock it out completely? Is it an essential gene? We believe it is, but it's not dictated as an essential gene. Because bioinformatics teaches us that there are lots of mapping, very elegant approaches that have been very detailed by many scientists in the world, very well orchestrated. For example, the deep map in the Broad Institute is an open reservoir for information. But it's not always 100% correct because this is done in cell lines. And the question is what's going on in primary tumors from real patients. I think that you need to test this. The future is probably to be able to edit genes in cancer in a way that a single dose or, or maybe two or three dose will finish this thing with this gene. We are not naive. We understand that this is a multifactorial disease that have lots of factors included in this, and it's not trivial. And we want to offer another way, another alternative to patients. When we think about current cancer treatments such as chemotherapy or radiotherapy, specificity isn't really a thing there, right? It's so brutal. You try and poison the cancer before you poison the patient. So is that the main advantage here, using treatments like I this? I think that first you're playing with the DNA. So if we're thinking about that, if we were able to cut out a gene, knock out a gene from our genome, of the cancer cell, and you do it in a specific manner without having adverse effects in different organs, you've already done something very important. And then on the other hand, you know, chemotherapy is very effective. The major problem is toxicity. And we know that for solid tumors, if it was only a solid tumor, you will never treat only with chemotherapy. But we, we treat with chemotherapy because we fear from metastasis, and we want to kill all the potential metastasis from lymph vessels, from blood vessels, and in other organs as well that are metastasizing. And I think that we will probably not omit completely chemotherapy in the near future, but we will use it in a more skilled manner. So it's not only just floating the body with a lot of chemotherapy, but probably building a personalized profile for the patient with the drugs that are already on the market but can fit the specific disease. Ovarian cancer, you get Taxol and Cisplatin, right, initially, and then you get a different types of Taxol and a different type of platinum-based drugs because you're already resistant to that, and then there is cross-resistance. I want the treatment to be more focused, person-centralized, tumor-centralized in a person. Because we are different people, we have different profiles, and also our tumors are different. So sequencing of tumors is very important, but it's not enough. How they react is important. And, you know, combination therapy is super important. So what we want to offer is another 
tool or another drug in the arsenal for the oncologist to be able to use it when needed. I think we need to have this paradigm shift in our mind that you cannot do something that worked for 50 years because it doesn't really work. So, so over time, it's more damage than benefit. So is changing the paradigm of oncology what Dan sees as the future of his research? I want to believe in that, but I'm also realistic. So if we can do our small change, we already made a substantial contribution. My lab was the first to show that we can deliver mRNA in a cell-specific manner in an animal. And it wasn't so many years ago. But people were very skeptical. What can you do with it? Why do you need to express proteins? Why do you need the mRNA of that? Okay? We were only the delivery people. We are not the people behind the RNA. But even with a without a good delivery, it will never work. These are genetic medicines. You need a delivery system better than any, you know, chemotherapy or protein or something. For genetic medicine, you need your delivery and you need to be exquisite. We are not there yet, but I'm very optimistic we will be there in the next few years. We have now arrived at our destination and hopefully we delivered you to place a better understanding around lipid nanoparticles and their potential in improving the effectiveness of treatment. What a ride. And we come to the end of learning from our experts. What did we learn ourselves in this week gone by? Dodie, what have you got for us today? First of all, tell everybody what T-shirt you're wearing. What does it say on your T-shirt? Ah, I am wearing a t-shirt which says on it in very cool pixelated mid-90s letters, SH101. Right, it kind of looks like one of those neon pin signs. Remember those that they were either green or pink? Yes, exactly. And it just happens to be a synthesizer which was kind of made famous by, well, a bunch of my favorite bands back in the late 80s. Okay, so what I learned this week has to do with music and brain scans and how scientists have been able to decode and reconstruct songs by looking at people's brain activity. So they took the song Another Brick in the Wall. Oh, by Floyd, yeah. Yes, and they monitored people's brain activity. And they what, reconstructed the song from what people were seeing in yeah. their brain? No way. yes. Yes, exactly. And on sciencenews.org, and I've said it before, it's one of my favorite places to go learn stuff. You can listen to a 13-second excerpt of the original song and the reconstructed song. So this is important because it can help future devices for people who are paralyzed or if they're not able to speak or if they're not able to hear. It can help make devices create those senses for people. And here's something fun. This is a little bit of an insider joke, but the neuroscientist from the University of California at Berkeley who led this experiment is named Ludovic Bellier. And of course, at Cytiva, we have a good friend and executive named Ludovic Brelier with that R, so one letter. But anyway, Has he been moonlighting without his R? Maybe that's what he's been doing. <laughs> 
Anyway, I quite liked it. You know, 13 seconds of Pink Floyd as listened to by brainwaves. And now we know what that looks like. And what goes better with Pink Floyd? Nothing more like a slice of pizza, perhaps. So I have here a study published in admittedly an open access journal called Nutrients, looking into whether pizza consumption favours an improved disease activity and modulation in rheumatoid arthritis. Yes, somebody has actually investigated the role of pizza and its ingredients in modulating disease activity in RA. So they looked at the pizza-related food items, mozzarella cheese and olive oil, and saw whether they showed beneficial effects. Um, And it looks like they need to do more studies to confirm whether this beneficial effect of pizza and its related food items really does modulate rheumatoid arthritis. I think this is just an excuse for researchers to order more pizza. Pizza is only beneficial. It's only beneficial. Nothing else can be true. So there you go. (laughs) The link is in the show notes if you care to look at it and comment on whether or not this is worthy research. But hey, science is science. It goes all over the place. Well, thank you for starting this episode talking about fat and finishing by talking about pizza. There we go. (laughs) Our producer is Beth Armit Brewster, editing, mixing, supervision by Vanda Productions, music from Epidemic Sound. Dodie Axelson here saying thank you for listening. And I'm Connor McKechnie. Make sure you rate us on Spotify or whichever platform you use. If you think there's research that we should look at, email us. You can find us. Um, We'll see you when we come back with another episode of Discovery Matters. 